นโมทัสสะบุคคลทวารหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคคลทวารหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคคลทวารหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนมัสสะคำถามเ
So that's why there's the emphasis. And, and uh, it reminds me of a depiction of the Buddha's teaching, which a uh, very ancient uh, graphic portrayal of what the Buddha was talking about is these days is, is very popular. And um, in the Tibetan tradition, they're called the Wheel of Life. You can see this, this uh, monster uh, with, in the teeth, a wheel, and then the 12 links of dependent origination around the outside, and then six realms of existence, and then, and then on the inside you've got another circle where you've got a rooster eating the tail of a snake, eating the tail of a pig, eating the tail of the rooster, eating the tail of a snake, eating the tail of a pig, and so on. And, and this, what you have, is uh, greed, which is not satisfied, then turning into anger, which then exhausts itself, becoming confused and deluded, and then, and then re-manifesting as more greed and aversion and delusion, just going round and round and round. But if you look at this depiction, yeah, at the centre, in the centre of this, there's the colour uh, light blue, which uh, for the Tibetans uh, is the expression of, of emptiness. If we think that greed, aversion, delusion is the core, or if we think that we are inherently evil, <laughs> bad news, yeah, very bad news, well, you could think like that. I mean, there's plenty of evidence that kind of hints in that direction. There's so much of it around. But if you make the kind of effort that we're all making here, you can go beyond that and, and taste the silence, the stillness, that can witness greed, aversion, and delusion manifesting. And so that's, but that takes a lot of letting go, a lot of letting go of the objecting to the way things are. A lot of letting go of the desire for things to be otherwise. Yeah. As wholesome and as uh, apparently altruistic as our desires may be for things to be otherwise, if we're grasping at them, well, then it, there's no contentment. There's no calm. There's no clarity. And, and you know, Sometimes they're real gritty problems that just have to be dealt with. And they do have to be dealt with. But how do we get the faculties that are going to give us the optimum level of intelligence and sensitivity to deal with them? How do we get those faculties? Well, the Buddhist teaching you know, points out that so long as you're caught up in greed, aversion, or delusion, you're not going to have those faculties. Uh, recently, I, I told the story of, of a situation in, in China, uh, very pertinent right now, given the earthquake and people being buried alive there. But this story actually predates all that, goes back to sometime last year, where a builder on a building site, uh, Mr. Wong was his name, uh, I'll retell the story briefly, was, uh, well, had the job of digging a five-meter trench in this uh, muddy clay. And uh, the uh, health and safety standards on the building sites in China are not always up to scratch. And uh, sadly for Mr. Wong, this slushy, muddy clay collapsed on him. And he was the only person in the hole, and all his mates around it saw it happen, and there wasn't the proper scaffolding and support there. And so Mr. Wong was covered, instantly covered by, you know, five metres. That's a, that's, a, that's a deep hole. Well, they couldn't go at it with the pickaxe for obvious reasons. They had to use their hands. And, and for two hours they were scraping away, desperately scraping away to try and rescue their mate, Mr. Wong. And meanwhile, Mr. Wong was underneath this, all this mud, and what had happened was uh, that just underneath his helmet, he had a ha safety helmet, it's the only gesture towards the health and safety that he had, was a little bit of air trapped, and he could just tip his head up to access his nose, this little bit of air. And he was a committed Buddhist, Mr. Wong, and he knew that if he allowed himself to panic, then, of course, he'd use up the oxygen very quickly. But if he could exercise the restraint and discipline uh, of mindfulness and patience, uh, there was a chance he'd survive. And he did. He, and, uh, of course, the doctors considered it all a miracle. You know, five minutes and that sort of weight of, of solid clay, you, your, your history... So what did Mr. Wong do? Did he, did he acquiesce? Did he like the situation? Yeah. Did he agree with being covered with all this mud? No. Did he, did, he, did he approve of it? No. Did he think it was a good idea? No. But he did surrender to it. And he did stop wanting it to be otherwise, or demanding that it be otherwise. Yeah. 
because he realized that if he was caught up in that kind of effort, the reaction would have uh, brought about his, um, his death. So he survived. So I think that's a, a helpful little image for having the right emphasis in practice that we need to be able to pull back from our compulsive reactivity, you know, whether it's feeling indignant, and there's another question here which talks about this. Um, I feel great anger towards the gangster financiers who profit from our casino-like financial systems. Likewise, there are many others for whom one might find it difficult to feel compassion, e.g. the generals in Burma. How might we practice and demonstrate compassion for such people? Yeah, very good question. We can't just put a, a gloss over it and just say, may all beings be well, you know. That's what Buddhists do. Loving kindness, you know, it makes you puke, really, when you hear that. Yeah. I've heard teachings on, may all beings be well, I just want to throw a brick at the guy. If you want to put a kind of a, a kind of a love smear over the ugliness of life, that's that's not it. That's like putting skin cream. You know, you get the best quality calendular ointment, and you put it over a boil. Yeah, you, you don't do that to a boil. Right? If you've got a boil, you've got to wait for it, or maybe you need a little help to lance the boil until all the pus comes out. And now it's not beautiful. You know, little blood comes out as well. Ugly things boil, no doubt about it. But there's some bad stuff in there that needs to come out. You don't put skin cream over it. Well, we can do that with our loving-kindness meditation. You may all beings be well. <laughs> Where's the bucket? <laughs> We're not pretending that life's not ugly and sad and painful, but rather cultivating the the access to a dimension whereby we can feel the pain that arises naturally when you see what the generals of Burma are doing or the casino-like financial people are doing, this injustice and abuse and taking advantage. You can feel the pain. But are we going to allow ourselves to be defined by that? That's, that's the choice. Now, if we don't have access to this dimension, we don't know it's a choice. We think that it's an obligation, and again, it's what everybody else is doing, getting indignant and litigation and, and so on. This is you know, what's happening around us. Well, that's why it's so important to have access to spiritual advisors, you know, people who encourage us to think differently. That's why it's so useful to be able to download MP3 files or or watch videos, or read books, or, or spend time on retreat, where you actually sense, you get a sense, oh no, there's an alternative way of being, actually there's a... And, uh, if, as I assume is the case for most of us, or all of us, uh, say, well actually, this, this is more sane. It may not be obvious to the, on the sensory level, sitting here, you know, hour after hour, uh, doesn't look like much is happening on the outside, but inwardly we know we're making effort, we're making effort to not follow the tendencies of greed, aversion and delusion. You know, these poisons that are there, which, you know, we've been there for a long time, and, and they're just like an addiction. They're just like an addiction. They, they, they express themselves just as any other addiction. Yeah. And my addiction to sugar, which I gave up last year, some years before that, I gave up my addiction to caffeine. And, and you go through these withdrawals and you, you think, oh, is it worth it? Maybe just a little bit and it'll be okay. And oh, everybody else is doing it. Everybody else can have sugar in their coffee. Everybody else can have a cup of coffee after the meal. Why can't I? And all this kind of garbage that goes through your mind. Just a little bit. Well, if you're addicted to the stuff, you've got to take it on and say, no, this is an addiction. This is, you, know, you can't be nice to your addictions. 
You can be sometimes very, very, very committed, very firm, very firm. Yeah. And if we are very firm and, and, and follow our commitment to, to not believe in the way things appear to be, you know, like in our meditation, the tendency to follow our thoughts, follow our fantasies, follow our worries and our grief and our anxieties, and just you know, come back to the body. But it's so tempting to think about my indignation or my problem. Yeah, it really is tempting, yeah. Sugar is really attractive. It's just absolutely, I mean, I just love cheesecake. Just love it, love it to bits. You know, I can, I can understand why people kill. Cares are cooking. Not just any old cheese, but German cheesecake. Uh, real, I mean, yeah. I just love the stuff. And it's not too sweet, but it's, it's just... <laughs> That's a drug. That's a drug. And, you know, you understand all of the bodies... Uh, Digestive systems, you can understand how you get addicted to it, or tobacco, or cigarettes. You, know, you understand how the science behind it, how they, they add ammonia to the tobacco just so that actually it's like it, it cuts you so the nicotine goes in quicker and deeper. There's a science behind how they get you addicted, you know, and how they make sure that you stay addicted. Mm-hmm. Well, addiction has got a particular pattern to it. You understand the pattern to it, and you say, okay, well, I've really got to be very resolved to come off this. Well, it's the same with greed, aversion, and delusion. They're addictions. Me feeds on them. My way is nourished, is fueled by greed, aversion, and delusion. Indignation, just, it, is, it is just such a high-octane fuel. I mean, you can just really feel like you're alive, you're somebody, and just, just yeah, phew. <laughs> just really be somebody, do something, be effective. Make, you know, change some things. We've got to change some things around here. Uh, well, you might affect change, but is it going to be for balance? Is it really going to be lasting, harmonious, beautiful change? Or is it just going to be another disruption you know, in the conventional world? And desires, you know, spiritual desires, you know, not just gross desires for cheesecake. You know, what about subtle desires? You know, really... I really want to develop the jhanas. Yeah, you listen to some Ajahn Brahma Wongsa talks. <laughs> yeah, can, Ajahn Brahma is very inspiring. Yeah. Very good friend, Ajahn Brahma. I got a lot of, lot of respect and I spent a, a lot of time with him and I enjoy his company. But, but when he gets, goes on about the jhanas, he can just, he can, he can, he can really get you convinced that everything you're doing is wrong. And uh, I'm gonna. I've got to change my practice, and then you can get all greedy for the jhanas. I've seen it happen many times. Well, it has. It happens. That some people do have an affinity with the, that path of practice, and Ajahn Brahm could be a great teacher for you if you have an affinity with the jhanas, then you go for it. But one of the things he'll point out to you, one of the things Ajahn Brahm will point out to you very early on, is that you can only develop this path if you've got contentment. You've got to start from contentment. See the sign I put up at the entrance down at Kutzler House? I hope you all saw it there. Yeah. Contentment is not the goal of practice. Contentment is the way. Yeah. Yeah. If we're going to follow the path of developing the jhanas, you can't get greedy for them. But it's so tempting. Even the way Ajahn Brahm te- teaches can get you greedy for the jhanas because you know, it can be very inspiring. So we've got to get more subtle than that. You know, greed, aversion, and delusion are, are these are these are these are primary conditions. That if we don't emphasise this, then our spiritual aspirations, our political aspirations, our our expressions in the world uh, may not be as productive and as wonderful as we were hoping. So that's why there's the emphasis. Uh, on, on these things. Now, now having said that, once, once we know how to let go and we have access to stillness and clarity and calm and we can relativize these moods, uh, indignation, you know, can we get behind indignation or are we being driven by it? Yeah. desire? Can we get behind our desire? Can we 
Are we in a position to be able to reflect on it? I always quote the Dalai Lama on these things because and he's such a wonderful example when anybody tries to stir him up over the Chinese and he, he just says, I know if I get angry, I lose intelligence. I can't serve my people. I can't do my job if I get indignant. And it's just a statement of fact. Eh? Yeah. So if we have this as the foundation in our practice, well, then we're in a position where we can do things effectively. We know what it means to be wholehearted and single-minded in a wholesome way. You can be single-minded about indignation, single-minded on craving, but that's in an unwholesome way. So being single-minded, wholehearted in a wholesome way, where we know how to get behind these conditions to reflect on them, well, then we can say, yeah, this is a wholesome condition and we can really engage it passionately, enthusiastically, and, and hopefully bring about real change. And you'll see some of the greatest people on the planet, the people that everybody loves and admire and write about for generations. Uh, are these people? Yeah. Yes, they were single-minded, wholehearted, passionate, enthusiastic, effective uh, movers and shakers on the planet. So why does this tradition uh, encourage, uh, emphasize uh, letting go and being at peace with the way things are, because this is a core issue. But you don't want to mistake the way the contemplatives of the Buddhist world behave for being an example for everybody. I mean, this is actually, it is misunderstood sometimes, whereas for many of the popular religions of the world, the mystics, the contemplatives, are at the fringe and are often even ostracized. Whereas in Buddhism, it's always been the case that the contemplatives are at the core. Now, it's a mistake to think that that means everybody's supposed to be behaving like a monk or nun. That's not the case. You know, if, you, if it's your calling in life to become a monk or nun, well, that's fine. But if it's your calling in life to become a, a hairdresser, well, that's what you do. You get enthusiastic and passionate about being a hairdresser or about a university lecturer or about a bricklayer or about a doctor or a psychologist or whatever it is, you know, or a politician or an educator how to be enthusiastic and effective in whatever it is that, that uh, we feel drawn to in life. And it is, it is a, a mistake, I, I would say, to, to think that because in Buddhism uh, the contemplatives are at the core, that, that that's an expectation that everybody behave like a, a monk or nun. That's, that's not the encouragement. But if you can appreciate that the benefit that would be gained from, from all school teachers going on a, a, a week retreat every year. Can you imagine what would be the effect on our education system if all the school teachers, part of their training, and then their also paid holiday during the year, was to go on a meditation retreat. Now, what do you think that would do for their empathetic capacities and their mindfulness and their sensitivity and their intelligence and their patience and be brilliant. You're politicians. I mean, it's just too wonderful to think about, isn't it? <laughs> just imagine getting Gordon Brown to do a Weepassana retreat. <laughs> I'd like to get Anne Whittakim on retreat. <laughs> I think she'd be great. So that's the point, you know, it's, uh, you know, that's what we're talking about, is it's getting the emphasis right. Yeah. One, of the, one of the images the Buddha gave, and many of you will be familiar with, is the, um, the, the, the soldier is out at war and he gets an arrow stuck in his leg. And, and then the Buddha asks the monks, he says, well, well, what do you think of this soldier if you know, all his mates run up and they're trying to get this arrow out of his leg? And he says, no, no, don't bother with that, find out who shot the arrow and... You know, whether he had a nice wife or whether he was well-educated and, and whether he was tall or short or whatever. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's a very uh, insane response. The priority is to get the arrow out, right? Okay, so if we're all suffering, which we are, the priority is to get a handle on that perspective that shows us that there's a cause for the suffering and there's a possibility of a cessation of suffering. If we don't have that well then, the only other alternative is to be projecting the suffering on the world. That's the only other alternative. If we don't know where the cause for suffering is, 
then we will project it out onto the world and that will perpetuate the imbalance. And so that's the reason for the emphasis, you know, to find this perspective and then from that place, each of us in our own way to, to engage in the world as we meet it. So I hope that's useful to you. As for the, uh, the business about uh, making merit, uh, it's not really part of our culture, and so it comes across as being a bit strange, and even the word merit, it, sounds, it just kind of brings up the idea of girl guides and, and other such things. But it shouldn't be misunderstood. Um, it shouldn't be dismissed in that way, because the Buddha spoke about it often. Uh, the word in Pali is punya, and uh, it's better understood as wholesome potential. Yeah. that whenever there's a wholesome intention and we act on it, there's a, a certain momentum, a certain energetic momentum is generated. Yeah. So if there's a wholesome intention, there is punya generated, wholesome potential is generated, that, that eventually that will manifest as well-being, as goodness in some form or other. And likewise, if you do the other, you know, you unskillful, unwholesome intention that's acted upon we generate actually the causes for suffering in the future. And so so cultivating punya, the Buddha spoke about it, is something really worth doing, generating this wholesome potential. And when because if there's no punya, well then actually uh, there there isn't insight. You don't develop insight if there's not the accumulation of of wholesome potential. It's like the concentration in a liquid. Remember the experiments we used to do in school where you keep dissolving this chemical in a solution until it reaches a certain point and then precipitation takes place. Just that one last little molecule brings about a certain optimum level of concentration and then precipitation takes place. Well, up until that point, it's building up punya. It's building up potential for precipitation. Yeah. So we all want the insight, we all want the liberation, we all want the freedom, but it doesn't happen without causes. You know, the Buddha had spent lifetimes accumulating wholesome potential, perfecting the ten paramitas, until on that evening, on the, the full moon of, of May, uh, you know, all the conditions came together and the precipitation took place. You know. But before that, there was a lot of generating the punya. Now, if we have an overly materialistic attitude towards this, we can, we can be dismissive of it. We're afraid of spiritual materialism. We, we, we've seen too much of it. We don't want that. But we can be overly dismissive of it because this applies. You know? If you don't you know, have a generator that's strong enough, it won't produce light. If the electricity goes off here, we've got a generator down there. And if the generator doesn't work properly and doesn't generate the right energy, the sewage system breaks down and in no time we've got a problem. It's a question of energy. Yeah. Or you want to start a business, you've got the best idea for a business going, but you can't convince anybody to give you the capital. What happens to your business? Well, nothing happens to it. It doesn't go anywhere. There's got to be capital. There's got to be potential. Yeah. So the aspiration for liberation, that's the, that's the good idea we all have. But where does the energy come from it that fuels us, that, that propels us along? Yeah, that's the punya. That's the goodness that we... And the Buddha spoke very specifically about the benefit of generating punya, wholesome potential, and the benefit of dedicating it. Quite specific examples he gave of, of a conscious dedication and the benefit that comes from that. So, yes, I think it's worth doing. Absolutely. You, know, you, you want to help the situation in Burma? Consciously... Go on retreat, work really hard, push yourself further than you want to, and then dedicate the punya of the retreat to Burma. Yeah. Now, what's the evidence of it having a benefit? Don't know. Can't produce it. Yeah. Can't be sure. Yeah, but uh, the Buddha spoke about these things, and, 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 and as such, I certainly trust and have confidence in it. The, the force of the mind, the power of consciousness when it's potentized, particularly like this when you're on retreat. You know, the mind becomes very strong, the heart becomes very focused, and, and uh, you shouldn't underestimate the power of determination, you know, how this does bring about change, not just inwardly. You know, this person says, well, I feel you know, psychological benefits are not enough. I want results in the external world. Good. 
If you want evidence, well, can't be sure about that. And that's why trust is very important. I understand that there are tests being done about these things. The scientists are doing experiments to prove these things. And like now, there are insurance companies in California where you can get a reduced premium if you can prove a certain number of people are praying for you when you're sick. This is, this is true. Uh, at least in California, it's true. <laughs> Apparently, there is sufficient evidence to show that you know, the collective force of enough people who love and pray for you will decrease your illness to a point where the insurance companies are less likely to have to pay out for you. So they see it to their advantage to, to give you a reduced premium. So, so those of you that really like evidence that there could well be some out there, go and do a Google on it and see what you come up with. Uh, myself, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a faith type, and, and uh, if the Buddha talks about it, well, that's good enough for me. Uh, I see it as like... Uh, you know, my relationship to the Buddha's teaching is like the relationship we have to our sat-nav. Uh, if you have a sat-nav in the car, you, you, you can have one of these cheap ones that you know, hasn't been updated recently, and, and goodness knows where you're going to end up. Um, you, know, you, you listen to what they say, and you, you end up going the wrong way down a motorway or whatever, and, and you get into trouble. But if you've updated it, you've got a good quality version of TomTom, and... But even then, you don't trust it. You know, you, you know, not completely. So you study it as you go along, and you watch. And you say, "Oh, yeah, actually, yeah, that was right. There was a turning there. Yeah, that was right. Yeah, there was a bridge there. Yeah, the railway's there. Yeah, that's right. There's a mountain there. Yeah, there's a road sign there. Yeah, yeah, yeah." And you do this for about half an hour or an hour, and you say, "This set nav looks like it's trustworthy." And then, so then you, you know, your doubt decreases, and you go a little bit further. And after a while, you just stop doubting. Now, that's not because, you know, you've arrived at your destination. It's just you've tested the sat-nav long enough to have a sensible and intelligent relationship of trust in the sat-nav. Well, that's how I relate to the Buddha. You know, I questioned the Buddha for a long time, and I, I, I can't find anything wrong. You know, I tried very, very hard, and I can't find anything wrong. So when he talks about things like this that I don't understand, I just say, well, everything else that he talked about that I can investigate has worked out right, so I just trust him. So, okay. I have gained considerable benefit from reading the Venerable Ajahn Chah's Dhamma talks. I enjoy his examples and stories told in a direct style. I have noticed that sometimes he gave strong advice. For example, he once said, if you have an unwholesome thought in meditation, get rid of it. No ifs or buts or maybes. Also advises us in Food for the Heart that we must battle against the defilements. This is our duty as Buddhists. What is your opinion of this way of teaching? Do you think a direct approach, advice giving, would help the Western Sangha to deal with the challenges of our modern world? Well, Ajahn Chah said lots of different things to lots of different people. And, and um, so the advice he was giving on that occasion was presumably advice that was needed by the person to whom he was speaking. Um, sometimes he would appear to give completely contradictory advice. And somebody called him on this. You may have heard how he was, somebody asked him, he said, well, you, one day you say this and the other day you say that, and you, you're contradicting yourself. And he said, well, that's, that's what it sounds like to you, but to me it's not a contradiction. He said, I see somebody's going to go into the ditch on the left-hand side of the road, and so I say, go right. And then I see somebody's going to go off the, into the ditch on the right-hand side of the road, and so I say, left. To you it sounds different. Yeah. It depends on who's being spoken to. I remember one young monk who went to see him, uh, an English monk, and uh, he uh, said, "Oh, Lumpur, I said, you know, I'm puzzled that you know you give your Thai monks a really hard time. You really, you know, you really scold them, and really, you know, you don't let them get away with very much. But you never scold me." He says, "Well, why should I? You scold yourself all the time." <laughs> he, said, you, he said, "You're already giving yourself a hard time. You don't need me to give you a hard time." So the advice that you know, any Dhamma teacher, if, if he's worth his weight in arms food, is going to give is uh, suitable for the, the person who, who's, uh, who's asking for the advice. That uh, Sometimes it's the case that uh, 
if you're a bit of a slacker and you're just thinking about cheesecake and and so on, uh, well, what you need is a you know good kick in the pants. You need some pretty straight talking to shape up or ship out. You know the defilements arise, just kill them, take them out, mow them down. You know, stop being such a what's this word here? Somebody uses word wuss. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Wuss. What does the word wuss mean? What is a wuss? A, huh? a softy. Somebody here says, first two days of the retreat, due to aging limbs and lack of practice, I've been getting pretty bad pain in my legs, causing what I think was the start of an aversion to sitting. I've now started sitting in a chair. My meditation seems much more comfortable. Am I being sensible or just being a wuss? <laughs> Just searching, searching for a comfortable position. <laughs> I don't know, maybe you're a wuss. <laughs> you know, maybe you're being intelligent. Um, and that's, that's where this, um, the compassionate silence I was talking about last night is, is, a, is, a, is a great resource, a great thing to turn to. Yeah. Um, don't know. Should I really, really go for the jhanas and just stop being such a wuss and doing this mamby-pamby, just everything's the way it is, just let go and be at peace with it all, love and light and yeah. <laughs> all that? Or maybe I'm, maybe I'm a control freak, goal-oriented, you know, power-hungry maniac who needs to let go and just be at peace with the way things are. Don't know. Well, I mean, you could ask somebody else, and there's a lot of people around who are very keen to tell you. Uh, my, my encouragement would be, uh, really, don't trust them. <laughs> That's what I would say, don't trust them. Don't trust them too much. They may be able to help you, but the most trustworthy thing, the, the greatest help, is if we can really respect and appreciate the not-knowing mind. That's the truth. That's the fact. That's a fact we can go back to. I don't know. Yeah, I really don't know what I should be doing in practice right now, if this is the case. Yeah. And to listen to that. Let that take us. Let that take us. That's true. Let us take us. To, let us. Let's be in that place of truth right here and now. I don't know what's true anymore. So what? This is true. I don't know. It's true. Yeah. And we can let that be our refuge. If we always think that truth is out there, an idea, an opinion, a technique, mm -hmm. then we can spend our whole life actually you know, running away from ourselves mm -hmm. and going to see this teacher and that therapist and doing this retreat. And So I would encourage that uh, when we find ourselves, not if, but when we find ourselves, in that situation, to appreciate the not-knowing mind. I don't know whether I'm a wuss or not. You don't want to be afraid of being a wuss. You, know, you could be an enlightened wuss. Yeah, that's what you are, just be an enlightened wuss. It doesn't really matter what anybody else says if you're enlightened, does it? Yeah. Maybe you are a wuss, but if you're an ignorant, deluded wuss, uh, that's not very good. So how are we going to find out whether we're a wuss or not? Just accept the fact that we don't know, come back and feel it. Feel the fear of being considered a wuss. Maybe other people think I'm a wuss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or wanting, wanting things to be different in the world, wanting... Yeah, Wanting the politicians to have more integrity. Should I challenge them? Should I stand up and, and, and you know, maybe I'm just too weak just sitting around meditating all day long. Yeah, I'm too weak. I should stand up and challenge these guys. I've seen other people do it. Maybe I should do it. Maybe you should. It's good to call these guys to account. Yeah. But timing is everything. Yeah. Well... And timing, we're not going to get the time right if we don't know where we're coming from. Yeah. 
It's like the Buddha's advice for pointing things out to people. If you've got something difficult to say to somebody, if somebody needs to hear a reflection that they don't want to hear, maybe. He was talking to his monks about how to admonish each other. You go, bear in mind, right time, right place, right words, right motivation. So how are we going to know? Is this the right time, right place, right words, right motivation? We need to go to that silence within ourselves, that compassionate. I say compassionate silence because there is a silence that's just numbed out, cold-hearted. You can do that if you're a willful control freak. You can just focus on your meditation object, really focus with tremendous... You know, if you've been hurt enough in life, you're quite willing to sacrifice your sensitivity and just become numb. Yeah, it's quite quite possible. And quite a number of Buddhist meditators do that. Yeah. Yeah. And so you just focus intently on the meditation object until you don't really feel anything. You just go blank. But there's no warmth there. There's no sensitivity. Yeah. So that's, that's why I've been using the expression compassionate silence. Yeah. We go to that compassionate silence and and then listen to these concerns. Should I speak? Should I act? Is this the right time? Is this the right place? Is it? What are the right words? Yeah. Not sitting there thinking, well, I should say this, I should say that. Say, no, 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 just I'm concerned about using the right words and just putting that suggestion in. And this compassionate silence is a, it's a very creative, very intuitive, very intelligent space. Yeah. But I want to be right. That's just, you know. Of course you want to be right, but do we have to be right? If we're still having to be right, demanding that we have to be right, that bias, that preference, that attachment, that inhibits, that limits the possibility. Now this is not a philosophy or an argument or an indoctrination, something we have to be convinced about, but rather a perspective that if we appreciate that this is the case, then more and more we'll find ourselves, we'll be able to trust ourselves in the moment. We won't have to always be protecting ourselves and defending ourselves, defending ourselves against life, hiding ourselves. I mustn't be seen for what I am because because what? What's going to happen? We're only hiding from life if there's still parts of ourselves that we don't know how to receive into that compassionate silence. As I said last night, it doesn't matter what's going on in our minds. It doesn't matter what we feel in our hearts, so long as we don't grasp it, don't become it. With this here and now, whole body, mind, judgment-free awareness, we can allow the fears, allow the thoughts, allow the pain, allow the confusion to come through. And it will, it'll pass through us and it'll teach us something. So long as we're contained with the precepts, we have the precepts as our boundary. Start the retreat by taking the eight precepts, defining the boundary. Or somebody else asked, you know, what are the boundaries of the places we can go to? When we know the boundaries, we know where the fences are, we know where the gates are, where we know where we don't go, where we can go, we feel safe, right? We can relax. Just the same with the heart. If we don't know where the boundaries are, you know, if we think, well, we could lie, we know we've got a habit of lying, we know we could lie any time, well, we could get found out, we'd live in a state of anxiety. If we could take advantage of people, if somebody's got a habit of of manipulating or stealing, you're killing. I don't imagine there's anybody here who's got a habit of killing, but... But that's what the precepts are for. The precepts, if, we, if we're firmly established in the precepts, yeah. then we, 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 we give ourselves a sense of containment, of safety. Of safety. We know we, we can go to bed at night with ourselves and feel safe. Not riddled with anxiety. Wake up in the morning and feel safe. Not riddled with anxiety and worry and concern. Because these... Dramas, these stories, these stories that take place and repeat themselves over and over and over and over again, we have perspective on. They're just stories. 
these sensations that are generated in the body by the stories, they're just sensations. What is it that knows? Who is it that knows these sensations, these stories? In what is all this activity taking place? That's what we're hopefully learning to abide in more comfortably. That's the awareness. That's the state of being from which we can really investigate. How do we get there? Well, each of us has got to find our own way. All the techniques, all the teachings, as the Buddha said, these are pointings. That all I can do is point the way. But the impulse and the encouragement, the reminder to walk this way is the suffering. If there's no suffering, no problem. But as soon as suffering arises, this is the pointing. This is the pointing to the way. We've got to re-educate, retrain our minds. Since we were children, we we, we thought we thought that pain and suffering, loss, you you lose our toy, somebody takes our toy away, and we get up get upset, or or mummy or daddy goes away, and and we feel insecure, and and we perceive that as as some sort of you know terminal condition. Well, that's okay for children, but. You know, as we grow up, we need to re-educate ourselves and say, no, pain is just pain. This is part of the package. Life hurts. You've got a sensitive organism, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind that feel you know, an impact. It hurts. You know, so long as we're ignorant, we're going to have attachments. Yeah. And then when we're separated from our attachments, from the objects of attachment, it's going to be pain. Yeah. Are we going to turn that pain into suffering or are we going to receive it? Oh, this, this is the human condition. This is the ignorant human condition right now because we, we are, we're turning this pain into suffering. Yeah, that's at the moment that we're suffering. We're turning the pain into suffering, but we don't have to do it. And the moment we see that, and the moment we see that, if there is this here and now embodied, highly quality awareness, if this is there, then we don't turn the pain to suffering. We realize it's a choice. And then the faith increases, the strength increases accordingly. But still, often we're going to find ourselves in a place of, I don't know, what should I do? Should I do this? Should I do that? How do I deal with these Outer situations. Well, if we don't perceive the I don't know mind as an, as an obstruction, but rather let it take us back to a place of awareness, then it's an asset. It's something that will help us in practice. So there's a couple more questions which I wanted to just address briefly. One is that says, to what extent is knowledge or theory important on the path to liberation? And then in brackets, as opposed to actual experience. Um, I think the uh, best thing is just, you know, is like uh, to give the example that I, I usually reflect on, and that's the theory is a certain dimension. It's like I was talking to a bunch of people here on Sunday about theory of practice, practice of practice, and the fruit of practice. And the Buddha spoke about these, uh, pariyati dhamma, patipati dhamma, patiwaiti dhamma, the theory, the application, and the realization. And it's just like, you know, like you, you read a recipe book, you've got the theory, you know how to make really good kaiser cooking. Yeah. It's there, written down. Even the Germans translated into English. Cheesecake. Yeah. Really good organic ingredients. Yeah. No nasty chemicals. It's all written down there. But it's black and white. I mean, you wouldn't eat the paper, would you? <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. You don't do it. Well, that's the same thing as the theory of practice. You know, if we're trying to live off the theory of practice, just, it's just not nourishing. It doesn't, doesn't work. You know, an insult comes along, we get lost in anger. An object of desire comes along, we get greedy. You know, pain, sadness comes along, we get confused and lost in it. But if we follow the theory of practice, we apply it, you know, then we do it. But that means getting your hands dirty. You know, it's a different dimension. And, and, and Well, maybe you haven't got a recipe book. You've just got you know, what Grandma told you. Yeah. Grandma told you how to make cheesecake. Yeah. And she says, a knob of butter. A knob of butter. 
Well, what's a knob of butter or a pinch of salt? You know, that's how grandmother talked, wasn't it? You put a knob of butter in and a pinch of salt, yeah. and then you, you sift the flour. I mean, you can't, that's, that's not, you know, the words, or the, that's not going to do it. You've got to actually get your hands dirty. You've got to experiment until you find out what a knob of butter is, what a pinch of salt is, and how to sift the flour. And then you've got to get the temperature right. Well, but this is still rather tedious, isn't it? All this. What's really good, of course, is when you get to eat it. Right? That's it. And so that's, you know, that's the process, is the, the Pariyati Dhamma, the Patipati Dhamma, the Patiwedi Dhamma. And each has its own place. I mean, you can try and make, you know, Keza cooking without knowing what you're doing, and you can waste a lot of ingredients and, you know, burn it or not cook it and get indigestion and, you know, whatever. Or a more accurate, perhaps even a better example, would be a heart surgeon. If he's never done his study, you wouldn't want him to do an operation, would you? Yeah. But if all the heart surgeon does is study, 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 I mean, what, what good is that? Well, I suppose they can teach other people how to study, but you, know, you really, I don't know, even a, a teacher who hasn't actually done it, I wouldn't trust them very much. Yeah. So that's the relationship between study and practice. And I hope that's useful. And then there's one uh, last thing here which says, uh, I am struggling with drowsiness during meditation. I have tried imagining bright light, thinking of Dhamma teachings, reciting chants to myself, and opening my eyes for periods. But nothing comes, nothing seems to last for long, and I find myself nodding again. Can you suggest a remedy, please? Well, you're probably tired, and I think you should just go to bed. If you're tired, go to bed and sleep, and sleep as long as you want. Just stay in bed as long as you want. You don't have to get up for the rest of the week. And if you actually feel like you've slept enough, well then get up and meditate. And I, I don't think you'll nod off anymore. You're allowed to sleep, there's no problem. Okay, That's all there is to it. So thank you very much for your attention. <coughs> Thank you.